Anti-Federalist Papers, Section 27, Brutus Letter 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by M. L. Cohen, Cleveland, Ohio, May 2007. 3rd January, 1788. The result of our reasoning in the two preceding numbers is this, that in a confederated government, where the powers are divided between the general and the state government, it is essential to its existence that the revenues of the country, without which no government can exist, should be divided between them, and so apportioned each as to answer their respective exigencies, as far as human wisdom can affect such a division and apportionment. It has been shown that no such allotment is made in this Constitution, but that every source of revenue is under control of the Congress. It therefore follows that if this system is intended to be a complex and not simple, a confederate and not an entire consolidated government, it contains in it the sure seeds of its own dissolution. One of two things must happen. Either the new constitution will become a mere nutum pactum, and all authority of the rulers under it will be cried down as has happened to the present confederation, or the authority of the individual states will be totally supplanted, and they will retain the mere form without any of the powers of government. To one or the other of these issues, I think, this new government, if it is adopted, will advance with great celerity. It is said, I know, that such a separation of the sources of revenue cannot be made without endangering the public safety. Quote, unless, says a writer, it can be shown that the circumstances which may affect the public safety are reducible within certain determinate limits. Unless the contrary of this position can be fairly and rationally disputed, it must be admitted as a necessary consequence that there can be no limitation of that authority which is to provide for the defense and protection of the community, etc. The pretended demonstration of this writer will instantly vanish when it is considered that the protection and defense of the community is not intended to be entrusted solely into the hands of the general government and by his own confession it ought not to be. It is true this system commits to the general government the protection and defense of the community against foreign force and invasion, against piracies and felonies on the high seas, and against insurrections among ourselves. They are also authorized to provide for the administration of justice in certain matters of a general concern, and some that I think are not so. But it ought to be left to the state government to provide for the protection and defense of the citizen against the hand of private violence, and the wrongs done or attempted by individuals to each other. Protection and defense against the murderer, the robber, the thief, the cheat, and the unjust person is to be derived from the respective state governments. The just way of reasoning, therefore, on this subject is this, that the general government is to provide for the protection and defense of the community against foreign attacks, etc. They therefore ought to have authority sufficient to effect this so far as it is consistent with providing for our internal protection and defense. The state governments are entrusted with the care of administering justice among its citizens and the management of other internal concerns. They ought, therefore, to retain power adequate to the end. The preservation of internal peace and good order and the due administration of law and justice ought to be the first care of every government. The happiness of a people depends infinitely more on this than it does upon all that glory and respect which nature is acquired by the most brilliant martial achievements and I believe history will furnish but few examples of nations who have duly attended to these, who have been subdued by foreign invaders. If a proper respect and submission to the laws prevailed over all orders of men in our country, and if a spirit of public and private justice, economy, and industry influenced the people, we need not be under any apprehensions but what they would be ready to repel any invasion that might be made on the country. And more than this, I would not wish from them. A defense of war is the only one I think justifiable. 
I do not make these observations to prove that a government ought not to be authorized to provide for the protection and defense of a country against external enemies, but to show that this is not the most important, much less the only object of their care. The European governments are almost all of them framed in a minister with a view to arms and war, as that in which the chief glory consists. They mistake the end of government. It was died to save men's lives, not destroy them. We ought to furnish the world with an example of a great people who in their civil institutions hold chiefly in view the attainment of virtues and happiness among ourselves. Let the monarchs in Europe share among them the glory of depopulating countries and of butchering thousands of their innocent citizens to revenge private quarrels, or to punish an insult offered to a wife, a mistress, or a favorite. I envy them not the honor, and I pray heaven this country may never be ambitious of it. The Tsar Peter the Great acquired great glory by his arms, but all this was nothing compared with the glory which he obtained by civilizing his rude and barbarous subjects, diffusing among them knowledge, and establishing and cultivating the arts of life. By the former he desolated countries and drenched the earth with human blood. By the latter he softened the ferocious nature of his people and pointed them to the means of human happiness. The most important end of government, then, is the proper direction of its internal policy and economy. This is the province of the state governments, and it is evident, and is indeed admitted, that these ought to be under their control. Is it not then preposterous, and in the highest degree absurd when the state governments are vested with power so essential to the peace and good order of society, to take from them the means of their own preservation? The idea that the powers of Congress in respect to revenue ought to be unlimited, quote, because the circumstances which may affect the public safety are not reducible to certain determinate limits, close quote, is novel as it relates to the government of the United States. The inconveniences which revived from the feebleness of the present confederation was discussed and felt soon after its adoption. It was soon discovered that a power to require money without either the authority or means to enforce a collection of it could not be relied upon either to provide for the common defense, the discharge of national debt, or for support of government. Congress, therefore, so early as February 1781, recommended to the states to invest them with the power to levy an impost of 5% ad valorem on all imported goods as a fund to be appropriated to discharge the debts already contracted, or which should hereafter be contracted for the support of the war, to be continued until the debt should be fully and finally discharged. There is not the most distant idea held out in this act that an unlimited power to collect taxes, duties, and excises was necessary to be vested within the United States, and yet this was a time of the most pressing danger and distress. The idea then was that if a certain definite funds were assigned to the Union, which were certain in their natures, productive and easy of collection, it would enable them to answer their engagements and provide for their defense, and the impost of 5% was fixed upon for that purpose. This same subject was revived in the winter and spring of 1783, and after long consideration of the subject, and many schemes were proposed, the result was a recommendation of the revenue system of April 1783. This system does not suggest an idea that it was necessary to grant the United States unlimited authority in matters of revenue. A variety of amendments were proposed to this system, some of which are upon the journals of Congress, but it does not appear that any of them proposed to invest the general government with discretionary power to raise money. On the contrary, all of them limit them to certain definite objects and fix the bounds over which they could not pass. This recommendation was passed at the conclusion of the war and was founded on an estimate of the whole national debt. 
it was computed that one million and a half of dollars, in addition to the impost, was a sufficient sum to pay the annual interest of the debt, and gradually to abolish the principal. Events have proved that their estimate was sufficiently liberal, as the domestic debt appears upon its being adjusted to be less than it was computed, and since this period a considerable portion of the principal of the domestic debt has been discharged by the sale of the western land. It has been constantly urged by Congress, and by individuals ever since, until lately, that had this revenue been appropriated by the states, as it was recommended, it would have been adequate to every exigency of the Union. Now, indeed, it is insisted that all the treasures of this country are to be under the control of that body whom we are to appoint to provide for our protection and defense against foreign enemies. The debts of the several states, and the supportive governments of them, are to trust to fortune and accident. If the Union should not have occasion for all the money they can raise, they will leave a portion for the state, but this may be a matter of mere grace and favor. Doctrines like these would not have been listened to by any state in the Union, at a time when we were pressed on every side by a powerful enemy, and were called upon to make greater exertions that we have any reason to expect we shall ever be again. The ability and character of the Convention, who framed the perfect Constitution, is sounded forth and reiterated by every declaimer and writer in its favor as a powerful argument to induce its adoption. But are not the patriots who guided our councils in the perilous times of the war entitled to equal respect? How has it happened that none of these perceived the truth, which it is pretended is capable of such clear demonstration that the power to raise the revenue should be deposited in the general government without limitation? Were the men so dull of apprehension, so incapable of reasoning, as not to be able to draw the inference? The truth is, no such necessity exists. It is a thing practicable, and by no means so different as pretended, to limit the powers of the general government in respect to revenue, while yet they may retain reasonable means to provide for the common defense. It is admitted that human wisdom cannot foresee all the variety of circumstances that may arise to endanger the safety of nations, and it may, with equal truth, be added that the power of a nation exerted with its utmost vigor may not be equal to repel a force with which it may be assailed, much less may it be able, with its ordinary resources and power, to oppose an extraordinary and unexpected attack. But yet every nation may form a rational judgment, what force will be competent to protect and defend it against any enemy which it is probable it may have to contend. In extraordinary attacks, every country must rely upon the spirit and spectral exertion of its inhabitants and these extraordinary efforts will always very much depend upon the happiness and good order of the people experienced from wise and prudent administration of their internal government. The states are as capable of making a just estimate on this head as perhaps any nation in the world. We have no powerful nation in our neighborhood. If we are to go to war, it must either be with the aboriginal natives or with European nations. The first are so unequal to a contest with this whole continent that they are rather to be dreaded for the depredations they may make on our frontiers than for any impression they will ever be able to make on the body of the country. Some of the European nations, it is true, have provinces bordering upon us, but from these, unsupported by the European forces, we have nothing to apprehend. If any of them should attack us, they will have to transport their armies across the Atlantic at immense expense, while we should defend ourselves in our own country, which abounds with every necessity of life. For defense against any assault, which there is any probability will be made upon us, we may easily form an estimate. I may be asked to point out the sources from which the general government could derive a sufficient revenue to answer the demands of the Union. 
Many might be suggested, and for my part I am not disposed to be tenacious of my own opinion on the subject. If the object be defined with precision, and will operate to make the burden fall anything nearly equal on the different parts of the Union, I shall be satisfied. There is one source of revenue which is agreed the general government ought to have the sole control of. This is an imposed upon all goods imported from foreign countries. This would of itself be very productive and would be collected with ease and certainty. It will be a fund, too, constantly increasing, for our commerce will grow with the productions of the country, and these, together with our consumption of foreign goods, will increase with our population. It is said that the impost will not produce a sufficient sum to satisfy the demands of the general government. Perhaps it would not. Let some other than equally well-defined be designed them. This is practicable as certain, because such particular objects were proposed by some members of Congress when the revenue system of April 1783 was agitated in that body. It was then moved that a tax at a rate of nineteenths of a dollar on surveyed land and a house tax of half a dollar on a house should be granted to the United States. I do not mention this because I approve of raising a revenue in this mode. I believe such a tax would be difficult in its collection and inconvenient in its operation. But it shows that it has heretofore been the sense of some of those who now contend that the general government should have unlimited authority in matters of revenue, that their authority should be definite and limited on that head. My own opinion is that the objects from which the general government should have authority to raise revenue should be of such a nature that the tax should be raised by simple laws, with few officers, with certainty and expedition, and with the least interference with the internal police of the states. Of this nature is an impost on imported goods, and it appears to me that a duty on exports would also be of this nature, and therefore, for I ought can discover, this would be the best source of revenue to grant the general government. I know neither the Congress nor the state legislatures will have authority under the new Constitution to raise a revenue in this way, but I cannot perceive the reason for the restriction. It appears to me evident that a tax on articles exported would be as nearly equal to any that we can expect to lay, and it certainly would be collected with more ease and less expense than any direct tax. I do not, however, contend for this mode. It may be liable to well-founded objections that have not occurred to me. But this I do contend for, that some mode is practicable and that limits must be marked between the general government and the states on this head, or if they be not, either the Congress and the exercising of this power will deprive the state legislatures of the means of their existence, or the states, by resisting the constitutional authority of the general government, will render it nugatory. Brutus End Anti-Federalist Paper, Section 27